The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast, your host and licensed fishing guide. I'm super happy to be here. I'm super happy you're listening. And it's it's really exciting because, uh, you know, I've been, I do a lot of driving around stuff. And more and more, I'm bumping into people who say, hey, I heard your podcast. And it's so weird to bump into people in real life who actually listen to this show. Uh, in fact, I'm here today. My kid, Zoe, uh, she's yeah. 11. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Uh, she's been part of this podcast for a long time, and she's starting to get recognized around yeah, town. everybody knows me. Everybody knows her. She's fishy famous, which, as you know, is like being regular fam- famous, only stinkier. Because, you know, fish. Uh, today on the show, we're going to open with the news. We have some really important news. Okay. Kind of a Debbie Downer news story from our friend, Rhett Talbot. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, after the news, we're going to talk about the struggle, the fear, the anxiety of owning a brand new <laughs> pontoon boat and starting a guide service. It is scarier, more expensive, uh, and harder than you might think. We'll yeah. talk about that. Uh, and, of course, we'll have a few other surprises mixed into the show. So, before we get into that, Zoe, we need to make some money. You know, we make, we, the way we make money is by selling things on this show. Yep. Advertising. So, here goes. First promo of the show. This episode brought to you by the Fish Nerds Guide Service. That's me. That's right. We are here and ready to bring you and your family on a guided fishing trip on a state-of-the-art brand new fishing pontoon boat. Yep, I said pontoon boat. This is a comfortable but very serious fishing machine. We can troll for lake trout and salmon, cast for bass, or cruise into a cove and put the hurt on some perch, bass, and panfish. Head to fishnerds.com for rates or give me, Clay, a call at 603-986-4335 to book we are the only guide service in the Mount Washington Valley that can take your whole family fishing. And if you don't like fishing, well, that would be surprising because you listen to a fishing podcast. But if you don't, yeah. if you don't, you can also just pay me to take you on the water for the day, birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, uh, whatever you're into, we can do it on the boat. Uh, special rates for bachelorette parties. Uh, so just give us a call and we will talk. So fishnerds.com for more details. Second sponsor of the show, Thirst Productions, is a one-man digital digital media agency catering to small businesses by helping them improve their online presence. From websites to search engine optimization, SEO, social media, to targeted advertising, website analytics, and website maintenance, Rich helps businesses speak to customers more efficiently. Thirst Productions also gives back to cold water fishy conservation projects by working with select nonprofits at deeply discounted rates to help them better share their message. So, if you're a small business who needs a digital facelift, or if you work with a nonprofit in need of a new online presence, get in touch with Rich at thirstproductions.com. Excuse me. <laughs> Links up at fishnerds. 
fishnerds.com. If you want to advertise with the podcast, please head to uh, email me, clay at fishnerds.com, or give me a call, and we will work it all out. Wow. So that's how yeah. we do it, Zoe. That's mm-hmm. how we do it. So first up, uh, the news. Our friend, Rhett Talbot, makes a podcast called the Beyond Data Podcast. Do you know Rhett Talbot, Zoe? Do I? Yeah. From where? You do know him. Rhett Talbot, his wife Karen Talbot, own an art studio up in Rockland, Maine. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, we went there. We looked at, the, looked at their artwork. Uh, they got a bunch of jars. Glasses. Beer glasses. They make the Angler's Pint glasses. They do beautiful artwork. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so his wife owns that. He is a journalist, and he run, makes the Beyond Data podcast. Um, his podcast is, is, if I was a serious journalist and knew how to write, um, it would be the podcast I would want to make. Here's what it says about his podcast. For the past decade, Beyond Data podcast host Rhett Talbot has been freelance journalist and science writer reporting on fisheries at the intersection of science and sustainability. He frequently uses the hashtag, uh, hashtag data matter because, well, they do. Uh, but what happens... When the data simply don't exist or are insufficient or unavailable. What happens when so-called alternative facts are considered just facts and people operate under the impression that the plural anecdote is indeed data? How do we reach consensus when everyone espouses his or her own data, his or her own facts? In the Beyond Data podcast, Talbot and his guests go where he's often been unwilling to go in his reporting Beyond data. So that's it. Anyway, I'm so happy that he's here. Um, and again, you can get his show at beyonddatapodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and he's telling us tonight, Zoe, about a fish called an Arctic char. Do you know what an Arctic char is? I've heard of them. You've yeah. heard of them. Yeah, they are a kind of trout. And our, in New Hampshire, we don't have them. We used to have them in Lake Sunapee. We called them Sunapee trout. And they're what's called extricated. Do you know what that means? No. What's it sound like to you? Extricated. Yeah. Extra. Imagine an animal that's in really, really big trouble and it's going away. What do we call that? Um, endangered. Endangered or what's the other one? They're gone? They are extinct. Extinct. And extirpated means like extinct in a region. So right now they are extirpated in New Hampshire. Uh, Rich is gonna not Rich <laughs> Rhett is gonna dig in on that. And uh, and talk uh, talk a lot about that today. Okay. And he's there's really there's a lake in Maine where uh, lake trout, which are also in the char family, uh, are actually hybridizing with the char. It actually hurts their population. Hybridizing means like that species mixed together and have mixed up baby. That's not quite the right genes to sustain a population. So here is Rhett Talbot from the Beyond Data podcast. There is evidence all over New England of a time when glaciers extended over the region. Unlike the conspicuous glacial erratics those large boulders one sees when traversing the landscape, there are also far more cryptic remnants. One of those relics is the Arctic char, a fish closely related to some of the more common trout and salmon species. The best available data show that only 12 distinct populations of Arctic char remain in the contiguous United States, and all of them are in Maine. Unfortunately, they all face myriad stressors that threaten their survival. And last week, data emerged that one population, 
the one inhabiting a body of water called Bald Mountain Pond, may be in a more serious predicament than previously thought. Um, so the Arctic char has a very limited distribution in Maine. Frank Frost is a fisheries biologist with the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, or IFW, the state organization charged with preserving, protecting, and enhancing the inland fisheries and wildlife resources of the state. Frost is the department's authority on char, and he explains that Arctic char were likely ubiquitous across northern New England as the glaciers receded. Over time, however, there was a predominant limiting factor that may have determined where Arctic char populations would survive and where they would not. Very likely, uh, lake trout um, were the uh, limiting factor um, as as all, as glaciers retreated. Uh, lake, you know, this all sorted out over time over probably likely thousands of years, um, and you know, lake trout probably were the limiting factor as fish invaded um, what we now know as you know, the area uh, in Maine. Arctic char evolved to thrive in deep, cold, relatively barren lakes without a lot of competition from other fish species. Many Arctic char populations feed largely on plankton, but some, especially in bodies of water where they co-evolved with species such as rainbow smelt, adapted to take advantage of the situation. Dr. Michael Kinnison of the University of Maine explains one such example in a place called Flood's Pond. Flood's Pond is an environment that had access historically still to the ocean. And probably uh, as that population was becoming isolated over time, uh, not only were there Arctic char using that system, but also rainbow smelt. And as the system became isolated, you got landlocked populations of both. And those uh, two uh, species then had sort of co-evolved as predators and, and prey with the Arctic char there making use of the smelt as a resource. Uh, because of that, that population of uh, Arctic char uh, tend to be bigger. They tend to uh, have uh, bigger heads, uh, other features for eating something like smelt. In areas where rainbow smelt and Arctic char didn't co-evolve, as they did in Flood's Pond, a very different scenario can emerge. While the exact effect of introduced smelt on existing Arctic char populations is unclear, Kinnison says the pattern is consistent, and it doesn't end well for the Arctic char. In terms of what is the exact effect of smelt on Arctic char, I'd say really boils down to a set of hypotheses. We, we haven't had a set of you know, very specific experiments to understand the exact interaction, but we know the pattern. Uh, the smelt are uh, introduced into a number of these bodies of water, and uh, almost as soon as smelt are noticed, there seems to be a declining trend in catch of the Arctic char by anglers or during uh, some survey work by Maine Department of Inland Fish and Wildlife. In Bald Mountain Pond, rainbow smelt were first observed in 2014 by IFW biologists. The first smelt were likely introduced to Bald Mountain Pond as a result of anglers using them as bait, a practice that is illegal in waters where Arctic char are known to be present. Since 2014, the smelt population in Bald Mountain Pond increased significantly, while the Arctic char population decreased precipitously. According to data collected by the state, in 2016 and 2017, only one char was observed each year despite fairly rigorous sampling efforts. Based on the data, what is known from other examples of Arctic char waters where smelt were introduced, and the specifics of Bald Mountain Pond, some people were already quietly questioning how much effort is justified in saving the Bald Mountain Pond Arctic char. Some people thought it might already be too late. Last week, that pessimism swelled with news that lake trout are also present in Bald Mountain Pond. 
and have been since at least 2014. In a blog entry published on the website of Native Fish Coalition, a conservation organization dedicated to the intrinsic value of native fishes like Arctic char, well-known outdoor writer Ted Williams documented state data showing the presence of lake trout. Williams contends these data were previously unknown to both the general public and advocacy groups like Native Fish Coalition, groups that are actively engaged in Arctic char conservation in Maine. The blog post, which is titled Bald Mountain Pond Infested with Lake Trout, quoted two sentences from a document obtained by Native Fish Coalition. Those sentences read as follows. In addition to smelt, lake trout have been confirmed in Bald Mountain Pond. In 2014, a 15-inch lake trout was captured in a gillnet. In 2015 and 2016, anglers reported catching two additional lake trout. And most recently, in 2017, two lake trout were captured in gill nets with lengths of 23.6 inches and 29.5 inches. IFW's Director of Fisheries and Hatcheries, Francis Brodigan, confirms that the document obtained by Native Fish Coalition and referenced in Williams' piece was a handout he circulated at a recent meeting of the Heritage, Brook Trout, and Char Working Group, and that the data are in fact correct. The working group was organized by IFW in 2017 and is made up of IFW staff as well as members of the public, including representatives of Maine's Aquaculture Association and Maine Audubon, as well as prominent Maine conservationists and angling advocates. The working group's meetings are open to the public, which is why IFW sent the requested documents to Native Fish Coalition, which did not have a representative at the meeting. Williams, by way of Native Fish Coalition, declined to be interviewed for this story, but Brodingham says the department made no effort to hide the presence of lake trout in Bald Mountain Pond from the public. There's there's nothing being hidden. Um, I, I guess I don't know why there was some expectation that um, anything that we found that would be different in any of our lakes and ponds statewide would be advertised as that. Um, usually if we have some new infestations that, um, that, um, that are surrounding, you know, a, a water body that's under some scrutiny, I mean, that information would be, uh, forthcoming. Um, uh, I guess I would say we, we've been forthcoming. Um, the meeting that I recently had, um, I took a look at, uh, the available information that we had, uh, up until that point in time and, and presented it. I mean... I don't know what else I could say. I mean, I don't think we've been holding anything back from anybody. There seemed to be some suggestion, I think the way the comment was phrased, that, you know, we should have reached out to the Native Fish Group, I guess, to let them know. I, I don't know. Critics of IFW, including those who responded to both Williams' blog post and a follow-up by Maine-based outdoor writer George Smith titled Lakers and Smelts Doom Arctic Char in Bald Mountain Pond, argue the department should have been more proactively transparent with these data, given the precariousness of the Bald Mountain Pond Arctic Char situation. After all, as Kinnison explains, the effects of lake trout can be disastrous for Arctic Char. Lake trout uh, are a species that grows relatively large compared to to the Arctic char in Maine, and also there are species that eat other fish. Unlike the Arctic char and floods pond that are able to take advantage of rainbow smelt as prey, the bald mountain pond Arctic char are relatively small fish that are already struggling to compete with introduced smelt. It's these multiple interacting stressors that, that make it hard. They, they, you can literally, these fish get squeezed between the tops and bottoms of the pond between predators and competitors, and they're these are species in this part of the world, at least, that uh, 
really has evolved in the presence of almost no other competitors, again, other than maybe brook trout. Amongst the competing and interacting stressors of which Kinnison speaks, Frost says there is one that is the primary concern for him. My biggest uh, concern would be direct predation by adult lake trout on char at this point. Other char biologists consulted for the story agree that predation is likely the primary concern, but Williams emphasizes another issue, hybridization, where a lake trout and an arctic char may successfully reproduce. Williams points to another New England lake, New Hampshire's Lake Sunapee, where he says, quote, char were hybridized out of existence by lake trout, end quote. While hybridization between arctic char and lake trout is possible, they both belong to the same genus, Kinnison says there is little evidence to support that this was the primary driver for the extirpation of arctic char in Lake Sunapee, nor that it will be the primary driver to a potential extirpation of Bald Mountain Pond arctic char. Uh, so it can happen, and it may have been part of the story for Sunapee Lake that the two hybridized. It's it's a hypothesis more than, than anything. While hybridization between Arctic char and lake trout in Bald Mountain Pond may not be the biggest risk, it is still a significant risk, especially when one considers extreme measures used successfully in other Arctic char waters in Maine. For example, reclamation where arctic char would be caught and retained elsewhere while the lake is chemically treated to remove introduced species so that the preserved char can be returned. Probably the worst case scenario would be they try to save some fish from the system and those fish are hybridized with lake trout. Then you're, you're, you're stuck with kind of a, a fish that you really can't use to try to recover that genetic resource. The other major effect of arctic char-lake trout hybrids on efforts to effectively manage arctic char is that it removes a powerful tool from the conservation and management toolbox. Environmental DNA uh, as a tool uh, works to detect uh, particular genes that we identify for a given species. eDNA is a powerful tool that can make the job of surveying a body of water far easier and less stressful to fishes than traditional methods. In essence, a sample of water can reveal with a very high likelihood of success what species are present in the body of water. If, however, hybrid fishes are present, it makes accurate species-level detection far more challenging. Uh, so it complicates the ability to, to use this, this tool, uh, which is potentially a very valuable tool for being able to survey and account for whether a species is still present at low numbers if there weren't hybrids in a system uh, like Bald Mountain and we detected Arctic char, we'd probably be pretty confident that there was still some fish that might uh, be rescued or managed in, in some way. But if hybridization becomes a possibility, then uh, environmental DNA it, itself would not uh, be definitive. It would suggest that there's Arctic char genes maybe in the system but you would need to get your hands on actual fish to sort out what they are. For its part, IFW says it's working methodically, and that a comprehensive document called the Bald Mountain Pond Char Conservation Document will be released soon. Francis Brodigan again. So most of the time with these kind of you know, incidents where we're, we're reacting to something in a water where we have a, a resource concern, it takes a while to, to get a handle on, on what's going on there, and it's really been only since 2014 that we've been working there. We are putting together, um, and it will be coming out um, fairly soon, um, kind of a document, I guess, that, that will kind of summarize the work that we've done, um, highlight work that we have planned for this, um, this coming field season, and also um, look at some contingencies that we're considering um, in an effort to conserve, you know, this this population. So 
I've got a lot going on. I don't know that all of that work has gotten out to the public. And even with some of what you're reading out there right now, I mean, people are getting little dribs and drabs of stuff, and they're just putting it out there. And the reality is they don't really know the collective of everything that's gone on and and, uh, and what kind of review process we've gone through. People are just very quick to react to even limited amounts of information. Frost emphasizes that it's still very early in terms of the department's work at Bald Mountain. While he readily acknowledges the loss of Bald Mountain Pond's Arctic char would be a significant loss, he also emphasizes that given only a handful of lake trout have been observed to date, the focus remains on the smelt. Um, I think really the the presence of a few individuals isn't as troublesome as the presence of a reproducing population. That's that's really where we you know we really um, get into a lot of concern. So if they do. If they do successfully reproduce, then we do document uh, young lake trout um, present at Bald Mountain. That's, that's where it gets really troublesome. Williams wrapped up his piece writing, quote, Loss of Bald Mountain Pond Arctic char would be, or has been, the first extirpation of a native char population since loss of the Rangeley Lakes fish in the early 1900s. It would also be, or has been, one of the worst native fish disasters in Maine's recent history. While everyone interviewed for this story appears to generally agree with William's sentiment, there likely will remain disparities in how different stakeholders approach the situation. Those differences will no doubt be exacerbated by what is at stake. With data, collaboration, and transparency leading the way, hopefully Bald Mountain Pond's Arctic char will have a fighting chance. The alternative, after all, is something nobody wants. If we lose Bald Mountain, well, losing that population... Uh, is certainly lo- equivalent to losing, you know, a pretty substantial portion of the variation of the species. When you're down to a dozen populations and you lose one, uh, it really starts to matter. So in terms of uh, the significance for Arctic char here, uh, the last remaining populations at the southern end of their range uh, in the U.S. outside of Alaska, it would be a, a significant loss. No, no, no doubt about that. It's not an easy one to come back from in terms of... Uh, you know, recreating, uh, given that many of these southern populations may and can have maybe unique adaptations compared to Arctic char living elsewhere in the world. Right. Thank you, Rhett, from Beyond Data. We appreciate that story. And, boy, now what do we do, Zoe, huh? Um, well, I don't know. Why don't we do some news? Okay. Some more news. Since we're in the news flow, we're rocking in the news area here. Let's rock it out. Yeah. All right. This is from the Korea Biz Wire. Um, research offers bounty for rare fish. This is uh, the big news, Zoe. Busan, uh, April 17th, South Korea researchers are offering a bounty of $300,000 won for those who catch a Jeonjiu, a rare breed of fish thought to be living in the Guamjiam River. Excuse me. The National Institute of Fisheries Science said on Monday that is, uh, it has distributed among local fishermen posters to promote its efforts to catch a female Jeonjiu, which are typically longer than 50 centimeters in length and weigh nearly 5 and 13 kilograms. So wait, what kind of fish does that look like to you, looking at the photos? Um, a minnow. A minnow. Why don't you look again at this photo up here? So what else? Yeah. A catfish. It looks like a kind of catfish. All right, it looks like a kind of catfish. And do you know how much money 300,000 won are? No. No, so that's a Korean currency. That's their money. Sounds like a lot, right? It isn't, I know that. How do you know that? Because 
America has a very high amount of money, so that's probably like five dollars. Five dollars. Well, you 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 know it's it's not three hundred thousand dollars, but it's not five dollars. Yeah. It's two hundred and seventy-seven U.S. dollars for each one cot. Okay. Now, with this article, it doesn't say what they're doing with them. If they're just getting paid to catch them, right? The population of Jeonjiu in South Korea has been almost non-existent since 1982, and the National Institute of Fisheries Science set free 2,000 fish bred through artificial seedling production technology, uh, in addition to the batch of 200 in the year after. It's not very many. Yeah. The National Institute of Fisheries Science has decided to catch female Jeonjiu after a number of specimens caught recently were found to be smaller in size than usual. Now, what does a smaller size fish mean to you? If they stock them all at 10 inches and people are catching 5-inch fish, what does that mean? They're having babies. They're having babies, right, which is really good news for this population, uh, which is great. Um, so this led researchers to believe they are reproducing in nature. And since 2016, the National Institute of Fishery Science in South Chongqing Province have been working together to boost their population. Now, interesting, in this article, though, it says they're getting paid to catch them. It doesn't say they're getting paid what to do with them. Are they catching them alive and bring them to the hatchery? Are they pulling the eggs out of the females? We don't know. Uh, we may never know because, you know, fish nerds are terrible at following up. So <laughs> we may never know this answer. That's pretty cool. How would you like to get paid $277 for each fish you catch of a new species? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really good. Um. 277.69 to be exact, Zoe, if you're keeping track. Next story up. From the Huffington Post, nearly 1,400 sharks spotted in mysterious gathering off the East Coast. That's the East Coast of the United States. Really? Yeah. Are there sharks here? Not here, I mean like... Oh, excuse me. Ad playing. That's weird. Uh, a series of aerial photographs found the largest congregation of basking sharks ever reported. So, Jeez. Nearly 1,400 basking sharks were spotted in aerial photos in a puzzling gathering off the East Coast of the U.S. Do you know what basking... Sharks eat? Food? <laughs> Come on. Fish? <laughs> no, basking sharks are plankton eaters. Can, oh, can, baskings. Basking sharks. Can you name another plankton eating shark? Whale shark. Whale shark, right. So basking sharks are actually the second biggest shark, and the whale shark being the biggest shark, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Dangerous fish, right? Super scary if you're a plankton. Uh, <laughs> not so scary if you're a person. The unusual plankton-eating basking sharks are the second largest fish in the world, surpassed only by the whale shark. whale shark, and have been generally believed to be solitary swimmers. So they didn't think they were in giant schools, right? A huge fish can reach 32 feet in length and weigh as much as 5 tons. An analysis of satellite and aerial photos found hundreds of them collected in, in a kind of shark conference in the waters off of southern New England in 2013. According to a new study, scientists suspect the gathering wasn't related to mating. The animals were all classified as either adults or juveniles, according to research published this month in the Journal of Fish Biology. Researchers speculate the sharks have been in a feeding frenzy of plankton. See, dangerous for plankton. Uh, <laughs> in that area before setting off on their annual autumn migration south. So they're still not sure why they're getting together. Yeah. But it's really fun for them because you get all these fish in one place, and that's exciting for them to study and also see the population. It's pretty easy to count them. It's easy to count them in all in one place. But but the other thing is, is populations um, of these fish have been really, really low. So seeing 1,400 in one space is a large chunk of the overall in the entire world. These fish yeah. are very, very rare fish. So that's really exciting for scientists. Um, anyway, they're going to keep studying them. Uh, and now they've been found up to 10 significant aggravations of basking um, sharks. 
uh, between 1980 and 2013. Uh, and, and so they're really, it's really exciting for scientists. Yeah. Whatever the reason for the mysterious gathering, scientists see a positive sign for this species, right, Zoe? Mm-hmm. During the 20th century, the slow-moving basking sharks were intensely hunted until their population eventually collapsed, and they're currently protected in the U.S. and the U.K. So no more hunting basking sharks. Even, even if they sound delicious. Even if they sound wonderful. As we know, the more endangered an animal is, the better they taste. Everybody knows this. No. No. They don't always. <laughs> no, we do know there's a correlation between cuteness and flavor, so at least they're not cute. Sharks are cute. Sharks are cute. All right, next up from the New York Times. New York Times. Sea turtles use magnetic fields to find their birthplace beach. That makes sense. Yeah, and you used to be a big fan of uh, sea turtles. Really? You you did. You used to collect. You used to draw pictures of them all the time back when you were like four and five years old. You were a huge, huge fan of sea turtles. You loved them. I don't remember that. Mm. The funniness about getting older, huh? Yeah. All right. Sea turtles use Earth's magnetic fields to navigate back to areas where they are born decades early, according to a new study that used loggerhead genetics to investigate their travels. After swimming for years in a giant loop from nesting grounds in North Carolina and Florida to North Africa, the turtles find their way back to nesting beaches within 40 to 50 miles of where they are born. Yep. So they're, they're coming in. And they're not finding the exact beach, but they're coming in that region using the Earth's magnetic field, right? Yeah, like, so I know foxes use that and they always go north southeast mm-hmm. when they're hunting yeah and they just it's amazing how animals can just do this thing uh and now they don't know exactly the method or how it's really really doing but they're but the neat thing about this though is they're trying to reintroduce sea turtles to places where they've been extricated extirpated what was the word we used earlier extincted made extinct in a region and they're thinking if they could trick these guys into like getting attracted to a different magnetic spot, maybe they can bring populations back to places like Bermuda and other places where they've been wiped out. Okay. So that's why this is really exciting. Yeah. So the trails can perceive both magnetic field intensity and its inclination angle, the angle that the field lines uh, make with respect to the uh, Earth's surface. Um, the early research has shown this to be the true thing. By using previously reported genetic information from more than 800 nesting Florida loggerheads, uh, the doctors were able to show that there was more genetic similarity among turtles that nest in beaches with similar magnetic structures. And there was among turtles nests where beaches were uh, physically close to each other. So the magnetic structures, they're just, they're just kind of showing the evidence that by using the genetics, these, these, basically these turtles were all like cousins, brothers, and sisters in and each mom region. And mom and dad. And mom and dad, right. So that's Baby. really, it's, it's really <laughs> exciting. Yeah, kids. and of course the Nieces, kids. Nieces, nephews. Right. It's also a better predictor for environmental conditions like beach temperature, he said. Loggerhead turtles are known to nest in Florida's Gulf as well as the Atlantic coast, with some apparently nesting on both sides of the peninsula at different parts in their life, which is fun. And the magnetic fields in each part are also different, so the turtles go back to kind of in that region. Uh, this is kind of exciting turtle news, Zoe. Yep. All right. Um, here's a kind of a fun fact. So the, the, really, the hard thing about bringing turtles back is... Out of a thousand babies born, how many do you think live to adulthood? Two. Two. Yeah, one or two. And that's true among a lot of uh, animals and fishes. We see that in uh, salmon. You might see a hundred thousand born and and one or two coming back to life. Or three. Or three. Yeah, just a handful of them, not many. So the percentages are really, really low. And that's kind of one of those facts about when we learn about evolution and natural selection, 
one of the things Darwin said is all animals have more babies than can ever live to become adults. And it's totally true. And yeah, it was true for humans, too. It used to be true for humans, and it still kind of is. We still lose some babies, but but we're getting really better. You know, it used to be like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people would have 8 or 10 kids, and like 4 or 5 would die. Yeah. So we always had like dead brothers and sisters everywhere. Now we mostly live to be adulthood because we're better science, and now we're having less kids. So that ratio is still kind of probably the same. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some news for you. Woo-hoo-hoo. All right. Hey, Zoe. What? What do you call a fish with no eyes? <laughs> Good one. Hey, so we're approaching our 200th episode. 200 episodes. Can you believe, Zoe, I've making the podcast for almost five years? Yeah. Yeah, you can believe that because you've, you've seen it. Yeah. How old were you when we started making this show? Six. Six years old. Six, so five you're, or six you're 11 when I was now. Kindergarten. Yeah, if my math is good, you're 11 now. Yeah, I'd be and six, but I could have been five. Yeah, so for, for about half of your life, I've been making this silly podcast. Uh, and so as we approach our 200th episode, we're going to do um, a live recording uh, on a boat, on our new boat, we'll talk about it in a little bit, on, uh, on Selkett Silver Lake, the worst lake in New Hampshire. And we're going to be mixing in jokes from listeners in between segments. So we're asking everybody to call 607-378-FISH and leave us your best or worst fishy joke. Zoe, do you know any fishy jokes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to hear a couple here from Zoe right now. What do you call a kitten mixed with a fish? Uh, That would be a catfish. No. No, what is it? A piranha. Get out of my house. I can't wait till you move out. (laughs) Give me another one. That was terrible. How are fish and fish and mu- music the same? How are fish and music the same? I don't know. They both have scales. I like you less and less the more <laughs> I talk to you. Why are fish so bad at basketball? I don't know. They don't like getting close to the net. I hate this. I hate this. Please do not call six zero seven three seven eight fish with your fishy jokes. <laughs> <laughs> You got one more? What is the best way to communicate with a fish? Tell me. Drop a line. Oh. So I have a couple more. I got one. And what did the Pacific Ocean say the Atlantic Ocean? Nothing. It's just waves. What is a blue whale's favorite James Bond film? I don't License know. to Krill. <laughs> what did the tide pool say to the other tide pool? Show me your muscles. What does seaweed Where does seaweed look for a job? In the Kelp Wanted. Have you heard about the restaurant that caters exclusively to dolphins? No. It only has one customer, but at least it serves a porpoise. (laughs) What lies at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? Um, A nervous wreck. A salmon walks into a vegetarian restaurant and the waiter says, Sorry, we don't serve fish. Walk, walk. All right. <laughs> hey, so call 607-378-FISH. Leave us a message. Yeah. If you uh, own a company or a business, you're welcome to plug or a website or a blog, whatever. Plug whatever you want. Uh, here's an example. We had a friend call in from another podcast and leave us a fishy joke. And I'm going to play that right now. Hey, Clay and fish nerds. Congratulations on 200 episodes. Holy crap. That's amazing. Good job. Uh, we're, we're trailing behind you guys. I'm, I'm Adam. I'm with the Twisted Ten and the Living Podcariously podcasts. We're almost at 100 on Living Podcariously, so trust me, I know what it takes to get to, well, at least that far, not necessarily to 200. But anyway, congratulations. That is, that's kick-ass. All right, so here's a joke for you. 
One day, two guys, Joe and Bob, were fishing. A funeral service passes over the bridge they're fishing by. Bob takes off his hat and puts it over his heart. He does this until the end of the funeral service. Joe then looks at Bob and says, Gee, Bob, I didn't know you had it in you. Bob replies, It's the least I could do. After all, I was married to her for 30 years. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. Super happy that you guys made it to 200. Can't wait for 200 more. All right, have a good one. And we're yep. back with a vengeance. This time it's personal. So, we got a new pontoon boat, didn't we, Zoe? Yes, we did. Um, what kind of boat did we get? Big pontoon a big boat. Giant, you just said we got a new pontoon a big boat. Big giant pontoon boat. Twenty-two feet. Twenty-two feet long, it's huge. Can comfy. fit like a hundred people on it. No, it could fit like two. Yeah, and it, goes, <laughs> it goes really fast. Yeah. Yeah, and we we put it in the water what three times, right? Four. Four times as of yesterday. Three times as the time we're going to tell a story about here. So, um, so as you might know, um, do you, do you know what boat? Stands for B O A T. It's not a real word, you know. Boat's not a real word. No, it's uh, what do you call a bunch of letters that go together to spell a word that means something else, like scuba, or. Um, well, well, scuba diving. Yeah, but scuba means uh, something else. It means, uh, NASA is not a word either, right? Yeah, NASA no. means National Aeronautics Space Administration. Mm -hmm. So boat means bring out another thousand. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Because every time something breaks on a boat, guess how much it costs? Thousand. Thousand bucks. We learned this. The hard the way. The hard way. Yeah. Uh, a couple nights ago, we were launching the boat for our first sunset cruise. Uh, and this is a big pontoon boat in a lake yep. called Conway Lake. And it's got a really sharp turn in it. And, uh, and Zoe was helping me guide in, doing a great job. And we were keeping the wheels on cement and doing a fine job. And all of a sudden, we heard this horrible crunching sound. Should we call the sound? Yeah, it was like, and I stopped the car, and I get out, and a tree branch was overhanging, and it grabbed what's called the bimini top, which is the... That was after we got down, though, past it. Right, but it, it grabs the, the top, it pops it open, and twisted it, and bent it, and ruined it. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and this is the first damage the boat had, had, uh, had caused, and like any good dad, the first thing I did was blame my kids and yell at them. Uh, which I'm sorry for. Uh, <laughs> I, I really did. I was like so mad. but I, And I wasn't mad at you, Zoe. I was just mad. Yeah. And I yelled at you because you were the one standing there. If, if, if anyone else had been standing there, I would have yelled at them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what normal dads, that's normal for dads mm -hmm. to do that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, we broke the boat and I wrote a new part for it. It'll come in in a few weeks' time and we'll be back to zero again. But man, I'll tell you what. Owning a new boat is so fun. It, oh man, he said it it's is. It's a fast, fast boat. It's a fishing machine, and it's expensive. And so when things break, yeah. it hurts. Holy smokes! So I felt. Okay, the kayak. What was I most afraid of? After breaking the boat. Mom. Telling mom. Yeah, I was super <laughs> afraid to tell mom. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go home and tell my wife I broke a brand new boat. And of course, she's not terribly surprised I break things because. Uh, because I, I break things all the time. And I'm going to try really hard not to break this one again. But it's going to happen. Man, I'll tell you what, though. Owning a boat and a guide service is expensive. We've made no money yet this season, and we're already in the hole. So We have no money right no, now. No, we're busted, yeah. Like 20 bucks. We're going to have to eat our own chickens. Yeah. No, we're not going no, to. No, we're not. All I right. I really just punches his nose. Yeah. 
All right. So, Zoe, another way this this uh, this podcast is funded is through Patreon. Patreon is a website that helps crowdfund art projects like a podcast. Yeah. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash fishnerds. And we're asking all listeners to give us $1 an episode. Mm-hmm. Zoe, if everybody did yeah. that. If everybody did that, give us $1 an episode, we would make enough money where I can quit my job and be a full-time podcaster. Really? And you can still go to college. Full-time podcaster and person. And fishing person, right? And you still be able to do that. Uh, anyone who donates uh, any month, uh, at any amount, will be entered into a monthly raffle. We give away fabulous prizes like fish nerds yeah. hats and, and fishing lures and decals and all kinds of fun things. Yep. Um, and in addition, uh, if you give us uh, $2 an episode, we'll give you a fish nerds hoorag. At $5 an episode, we'll give you a fish nerds beanie. Uh, at $25... Zoe, we will mention your business on the podcast. Like, and give you all the other things. And give you lots of other stuff, like our friend Josh Lopes at lopestax.com. Uh, if you need help with your taxes or you need money help, he is your guy and he's our friend and he gives us lots of money and so we love him. Um, we would love him anyway, but we love him more because yeah. he gave us 25 bucks an episode. All right, so go to patreon.com slash fishnerds and help us crowdfund this show. Zoe, people love our podcast. Yeah, I know. And they tell us by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review. And so I'm going to end this show today with reading podcast reviews. All right. All right. This is my favorite. What's that say right there? Best fishing podcast there is. Totally agree. The best. Uh, suck on that, World's Greatest Fishing Podcast. Uh, is that, that name of a <laughs> That's podcast? another podcast, yeah. But they are a pod faded. They don't make a show anymore because they're not dedicated enough to make 200 episodes like me. Uh, anyway, they're nice guys. <laughs> but uh, this is uh, by Honey Dukes. Uh, and again, Honey the title Dukes. was Best. Yeah, that's the person's name. Best Fishing Podcast There Is. Five star rating. And it says Clay's laid back style and love for what he does is clear in this show. If you have ever held any fishing pole in your life or seen someone hold one on TV once, this is a show for you. This is from Carlos from a podcast called Life, Death, and Taxonomy. What's this headline here? Great podcast. I uh, couldn't agree more. Again, a five-star rating from Jay Avery. Says must listen. What's that one say? Fun. Fun from Polvera 370Z. Five-star rating. This is awesome to listen to. I'll definitely be listening again. And then what's that next one say? Great fish tales. Great fish tales from the average guys. If you like fishing, this is the podcast for you. And finally... Nerdy! Nerdy by Another World Audiobooks. Huh. Five-star rating. Proof you can nerd out to anything. Oh, there's one more. You read that perfectly by Mom2014. Five stars. Uh, So into this right now. Love it. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fishers when you should have been fishing. We'd like to thank our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on Fishing Quest, and do all the silly things that nerds do. Special thanks to Rhett Talbot from the Beyond Data Podcast. You can find that great show at beyonddatapodcast.com. Thanks, Z. So until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. <laughs>